Yeah, uh, you guys know I'm a, a kind of a documentary junkie, and um, Hayden Esbitt, this guy right here, he got me hooked on this docu-series on Netflix called Bad Vegan. We got any bad vegans in the house today? It's dark now. Um, uh, I, I can't necessarily say I recommend it, but it's been intriguing. And um, here are the pertinent details about Bad Vegan. Uh, it's about this woman named uh, Sarma, I'm going to screw up her last name, Melngalis. Sarma Mangalis is the owner of a famous raw food restaurant in Manhattan. It's called Pure Food and Wine. Uh, she starts, uh, while she's, uh, she's already a successful uh, uh, restaurateur, and uh, while she's running her business with great success and acclaim, uh, she uh, finds a guy on Twitter of all places, and they begin to date. Uh, this guy's name, on Twitter at least, is Shane Fox. I won't ruin it from there. Uh, but his name is Shane Fox, and he claims to be rich. He claims to be tied to the CIA and the secret services. Uh, he claims to have access to a spiritual world that can give her and her dog immortality. Big claims from this brother. And ultimately, uh, this guy that goes by Shane Fox and Sarma, they get married. And uh, Shane Fox becomes part owner in this business. And over the course of uh, several years, he cons Sarma out of $1.7 million. <sighs> Man, it was tough. And ultimately, she is uh, convicted with him for grand larceny, for tax fraud, defrauding investors, and violating labor laws. And when they go under these charges, they go on a run, and they end up being caught by the feds in an ironic turn of fate because... Uh, they all get caught because they track her credit card to a Domino's pizza that's probably not vegan in a Tennessee hotel in Pigeon Forge. That's how they're caught. It's a really, really, really sad story about how this husband betrays his wife. Betrayal. That's what our sermon's about today. That's what our text is about today. And Dan Allender, a Christian therapist, he says, Betrayal is the breaking of an implied or stated commitment to care. Brene Brown says, Betrayal is the queen of evil. See, no one goes into a relationship. Sarma did not go into this relationship expecting to be betrayed, but it happens. It's always a risk we take. And we're destined to experience betrayal if we choose to enter in a relationship with other people. I know that's tough to hear. Because on one hand, we open up our hearts to enormous pain when we enter into a relationship, but our other option is to be lonely. It seems like a no-win situation, doesn't it? Pain on the one hand and isolation on the other. Well, brothers and sisters, the good news is that Jesus is very familiar with the pain that comes because of betrayal in relationships. And we see him betrayed in our text today by three different parties. The disciples, Judas, and then his father. Let's read the text together. Luke 22, starting with verse 39. And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. 
Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. The word of the Lord. See, the theme we looked at last week, we saw Jesus was with his disciples celebrating Passover in the upper room. It's Thursday evening, and they've moved from that supper into the Garden of Gethsemane in our passage here for evening prayer. So let's just say it's around 8 p.m. And when they get there, Jesus asks the disciples to pray. But the disciples, they've got that after-meal food coma going on, and they can't keep their eyes open. And even though they're starting to connect the dots that Jesus is going to have to suffer They're connecting the dots that he's not going to fulfill their expectations of leading a military coup on Rome. They still cannot pray. See, prayer was really hard for the disciples. And prayer is hard for us too, isn't it? And Paul Miller in his excellent book on prayer called A Praying Life, he says this, Prayer is so hard that unless circumstances demand it, circumstances like an illness or saying grace at a meal, most of us simply do not pray. We prize accomplishments and productivity over time and prayer. Does that strike a chord with you? It does with me. Prayer is as hard for me as a pastor at 41 years of age as it was when I was newly married at 23. I hope that's not the case for you if you're newly married at 23, but it's true for me. Prayer is as hard for me today at 41 as a pastor as it was when I was just a toe-headed high school kid at 17. So in some ways, when I read this passage, it's comforting to look at it because I know that I'm not the only one that prayer is hard for. But it's also disturbing because I see myself in the disciples. Even direct, urgent pleas from Jesus for prayer often end up with me asleep. So count me among Jesus' prayerless betrayers. But we see more betrayal from the disciples in our text today. What we see is that they have swords in their hands. And one of them, who just minutes before couldn't pray for Jesus, he's trying to make up for his lethargy. He's trying to make up for his laziness by taking up arms and becoming this justice warrior. You guessed it, that justice warrior is none other than Peter. That's what we find out in the other Gospels. 
He had to prove himself. He's trying to show Jesus that he's not the denier that Jesus predicted that he would be. See, he's saying, look, I'm willing to put my life on for you, Jesus. I'm trying to defend you. I'm taking up a sword. I'm cutting off one of the arresting soldier's ears all for you. That's what you see in verse 50. Yet this kind of vengeance is out of character for the followers of Jesus. I know it seems honorable that Jesus, that Peter is fighting against injustice. I mean, after all, Jesus is not a bandit. Jesus is not a rebel. He says in his text that he's not a robber. Jesus doesn't deserve to be arrested. And instead of Jesus applauding Peter, Jesus scolds him. Instead of applauding Peter, Jesus shows love for his enemies. See, the bottom line is that even though the disciples were sorrowful about Jesus' impending death, they cannot pray. Even though he had taught them to love their enemies, Peter still picked up his sword in violence. So Jesus has been betrayed here. It's got to be deeply hurtful for Jesus. I mean, think about it. He's invested more in these 12 men than he has in anyone else. Yet they exclude, they cannot execute the basics, the basics of prayer and loving one's enemy. Does that sound familiar to you? Do you find yourself prayerless? Do you find yourself looking for a Christian justice battle to fight when really you need to get busy about the business of forgiving? Well, I'm glad I'm not the only one. As painful as it must have been for Jesus to look around and see that he didn't have anyone he could rely on in the garden, it gets worse with Judas. That's the second party that betrays him. Somewhere between the Last Supper that he enjoyed with Judas, and now that they're in Gethsemane, Judas has snuck off somehow. And he snuck off to alert the Jewish religious leaders about where Jesus would be. And once he gets the Jewish religious leaders, Judas and that crew, they come with quite a squad of soldiers who are carrying swords and clubs, according to verse 52. But when Judas shows up, I want you to just zoom out and, and, and look at what you know and what the gospel tell us about Judas. Well, Judas has been there all along. He was called as one of the twelve. Judas had heard everything Jesus preached. G Judas had a front row seat for all of Jesus' miracles. Judas, along with the other disciples, were sent out, and he was effective in ministry. Judas had had his feet washed by Jesus. Judas had just eaten this Passover, an intimate, theologically oriented meal, right before Jesus' arrest. And now this Judas, the one who's experienced all that I just listed, has come to betray Jesus with a kiss. When you see kiss here, this is the equivalent really of a bro hug in ancient Near East. It was commonplace. You just greeted everyone, regardless of gender, with a kiss. The kiss expressed friendship and esteem and love. And that's part of what makes Judas' method of betrayal particularly heinous. What we see here with Judas giving Jesus a kiss is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. 
fulfillment we find in two Psalms. One is 41.9. 41.9 reads, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who I ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Psalm 55, verses 12 and 13 reads, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from it. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. See, here's the principle. The principle is the closer one is to you in relationship, the deeper the guilt of the betrayer and the deeper the pain of the one wronged when betrayal occurs. Have you ever been betrayed by someone close to you? It's very likely you have, particularly if you're a victim of abuse. Here's what the statistics show us about abuse. That 94% of all abuse happens by people who are in relationship. Only 6% happens between strangers. The perpetrator of abuse is almost always a family member or a friend. And that's what makes it so dark. See, Jesus knows what it's like to be you. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows your pain and he understands your suffering. So this betrayal by Jesus, by Judas, is just so painful. But you can see Jesus loving him in this passage. You can tell that Jesus still loves him by giving him one more chance to repent. Do you see it in verse 48? He gives him a chance to repent by asking him a question. He says, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? See what this question was? It was an invitation. It was an invitation for Judas to fess up, to come clean. Jesus trying to startle Judas so that he might recognize what he's doing. See, Jesus didn't need Judas to get arrested. Jesus could have figured out another way to accomplish his purposes of suffering for salvation without Judas breaking up their friendship. So it's Jesus' kindness to Judas to open up the door for relationship. He's offering him forgiveness. It's amazing. If you were Jesus, what would you have done here? You would have done what I would do, and that's you would seek revenge. Because getting revenge for betrayal is the most basic, natural instinct that we have. That's why we love those stories. One of the classic betrayal stories is the Count of Monte Cristo. It's about an honest young man. His name's Edmond Dantes. That's the main character. He lives this quiet life. And he plans to marry a beautiful woman named Mercedes. But this plan to marry beautiful Mercedes and bring him into his quiet life, this plan is halted by his close friend, Fernand, who is also in love with Mercedes. And Fernand falsely accuses Edmund, who's the Count of Monte Cristo. And that accusation leads to Edmund's arrest and his imprisonment. But Edmund escapes prison then he executes this brilliant strategy of revenge against Ferdinand. If you watch the movie or you read the book, you feel how deeply satisfying it is. Why is it so satisfying? 
is because people get what we think they deserve. And it's because revenge is the natural response to being betrayed. Yet Jesus here does just the opposite, doesn't he? He's holding out forgiveness for Judas, and he's inviting him to repent. So now, you've got the disciples. They've betrayed Jesus. Jesus. Judas has now betrayed Jesus. But it gets even more painful. Think about it. Judas' betrayal is in some ways different than the other ones. The other disciples are betraying Jesus out of weakness. They can't pray. Their allegiance to Jesus is clumsy. It's still betrayal, but it lacks the premeditated, deliberate evil of Judas's betrayal. But the darkest form of betrayal that we see in this passage is the betrayal of the father to the son. Does this sound like heresy to you? <laughs> it should. But that's what happens in the garden. See, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you'll notice that Jesus is in a very different place here in Luke 22 than any other place in the Gospels. Everywhere else, Jesus seems to be fearless in the face of danger. But here in Luke 22, he's trembling. Why is that? Why is Jesus so scared? We have some cues. One of them is the language of cup. And the language of cup is an Old Testament term. It's associated with the wrath of God. You see this in Psalm 11, Isaiah 51, Ezekiel 23, Jeremiah 25. But this language of cup stands for something broader too. It stands for the portion that one has in life. The cup stands for whatever God has determined to give a person. So when it's, Jesus says, let this cup pass from me, he's saying that, that Jesus' portion is the wrath of God. Jesus' portion is to drink down the bitter brew of God's judgment on sin. And that's why he's so afraid. The cup. But then you've got the drops of blood. They tell us about something about how Jesus is so afraid. See, the very prospect of experiencing God's wrath has caused Jesus so much distress that he begins to sweat blood. The horror of the coming cross brings him to the brink of death. See, Jesus almost dies here in the garden. Jesus almost doesn't make it to the cross because the mere thought of the cross about killed him. That's why Jesus is praying that God would open up another route for salvation than the one that's included his father's wrath. Jesus never knew anything for all eternity other than the father's delight. For all eternity, God had existed in father, son, and Holy Spirit in complete unity and love. But for the salvation of sinners to occur, a sacrifice had to be made. God the father betrayed God the son and it wasn't because the Father was exacting revenge on the Son. Quite the opposite. Jesus had volunteered to do what the Father willed, choosing to do the one thing that would bring his body and his soul the most suffering. He did all of it so that he could purchase the souls of sinners. Jesus took on damnation lovingly. Jesus bought you at infinite price. Jesus thought you were worth it. Brother, sister, I hope this charms you. 
I hope it compels you to rejoice for the wild and wonderful love of God. See, Jesus is saying here that we are unlovely, but that we are loved. And if you understand Gethsemane, what's happening in our text at all, it means that Jesus loves you more than you can imagine. But for you to see that great love, you have to see yourself as a betrayer of Jesus. An easy way to see yourself as a betrayer is to look at the difference in the similarity between Peter and Judas. See, Peter here in our text, he's already betrayed Jesus by not praying and by taking up a sword and cutting off a guard's ear. But his betrayal gets worse, doesn't it? If you look in your Bibles, you'll see that the next text is about Peter denying Jesus three times in public. So then you've got Peter and you've got Judas here as the most flamboyant betrayers of Jesus during these last days. That's their similarity. The difference is in how they dealt with their betrayal. Peter wept over his betrayal, but Judas never did. So if you think the key to a relationship with God is never betraying him, you're missing it. That's not the key. The key isn't, I'm not going to be like Judas. In fact, in church circles, we are the ones most likely to be Judas. Because we have been closest to him. The longer you've been in church, the more committed you've been to Jesus, the more likely it is that you're a Judas. So the key is to repent. If you'll let your failure bring you to repentance, then you're about ready to find some gold. You're about ready to find the gold of self-knowledge, the gold of humility, the gold of compassion, and the gold of love for others and love for God. So may we, as Hope Presbyterian Church, Grow in our repentance during this Lenten season. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray we would embrace that we are betrayers at heart. Oh, Lord, would you convince us of that? Or we don't want to do that just to think real lowly of ourselves, but Lord, but that we might see just the wonder of your love for us. Oh, Lord Jesus, do this work in us. We can't do it by ourselves. In Christ's name, amen.